This past Easter Sunday, Pastor Meyer, Dan, left us with a, uh, I think, an unforgettable image that really serves as a commentary on the human condition. The question was, what if you take beauty and genius out of its normal context and plant it in ordinary life? Will anyone take notice? Dan recounted the story of the Washington Post experiment where they invited the world-renowned impresario Joshua Bell, the violinist, to ply his trade in a busy Washington, D.C. subway as people were bustling to work. Would anybody know who this person was? Joshua Bell shows up in the normal garb of a street musician. One slight difference, he pulls out a Stradivarius to, to play his concert. For 43 minutes, he concertizes at a level that uh, was high and above, playing the great classics of the, of the world-renowned pieces. Did anybody notice? Veiled beauty, hidden there right in the midst of that subway. Only one person stopped and really recognized who this was and stayed and listened. The rest of the thousands hustled by, not attuned to the music. And of course, the obvious point is, have we done the same with Jesus Christ? Are our hearts so unattuned? Are our ears so tone deaf that we go through life and never hear the music that comes from another world? Do we just put our heads down and charge through life and miss what we've been put here for? And on my prayer since last Sunday, Dan, when you let that image sink into our brain was, may the Holy Spirit so take a hold of us that every time we see a street entertainer that the question is raised, am I attuned to the music that's coming from another world for my life? It's in this light that uh, we have the opportunity on this Sunday after Easter to return to the storyline. If you have not been a part of us, we have been, since September, looking at the major chunks of Scripture, the, the story that God unfolds in human history, especially in the Scriptures. And we're on segment number 24 today. And it's quite appropriate that we happen to be at that place when we're considering the person of Jesus Christ as no ordinary man. If you look in your bulletins, you can see we have a, a lot of scriptures that uh, consider this particular theme. But what ties all this material together is being that Jesus Christ was unlike any other human being who walked the face of this earth, or earth because he literally was out of this world. We come to the core issue, which all of Christianity rests this morning, that asks the question, who is the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the great dividing point, isn't it? Many are willing to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, uh, the highest of ethical examples, maybe even the most influential person who has ever lived, but not go so far as to say, as the Nicene Creed does, that he's very God, a very God. One of those persons who stumbled over that affirmation of Jesus' divinity was a man by the name of Charles Templeton. We are introduced to, to Charles Templeton at the beginning of one of Lee Strobel's books, The Case for Faith. He's going to be with us in a couple of weeks. 1949, Billy Graham and Charles Templeton shared the same stage. He was probably as well known as Billy Graham was at the beginning of their ministry. For four years, they toured, toured Europe. 
had rallies. They traded who it was that was going to be standing on that platform giving the message. Charles Templeton had had a rather dramatic conversion experience. He had come out of a life of, quote, sleazy strip joints, in his own words. He had become quite well known. But for Charles Templeton, doubts began to set in. Could he trust that ancient pre-scientific book we call the Bible? How could we reconcile a good God with a cruel world? So he began to have these intellectual doubts, and he started to pull Billy Graham with him to have an intellectual honesty about his faith. Well, we know how Billy Graham answered those questions. He put his confidence in Scripture and the God he has been proclaiming ever since. But Charles Temperson went an entirely different direction. He not only left Billy Graham, he also left his faith, and he finally wrote a book entitled Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. As Lee Strobel was putting together this book, The Case for Faith, he decided he wanted to have a personal interview with Charles Templeton. So he flew from Chicago to Toronto, Canada. And at this particular stage of life, Templeton was 83 years old on the front edge of Alzheimer's. Templeton made it clear that uh, he never could reconcile a good God with this cruel world, and it led to the abandonment of his faith. And as Strobel and Templeton were conversing, Strobel began to ask him questions about Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus Christ ever lived, said the Templeton. No question, Templeton responded. And then Strobel asked the core question. Did Jesus think he was God? Templeton shook his head no. That would have been the last thought that ever entered his mind, Templeton said. The last thought that would ever enter Jesus' mind. Well, therein lies the challenge, doesn't it? Not only do we think Jesus is God, but did Jesus think that he was God? Did he have a consciousness of that reality? And that's the question we want to explore this morning. How can we demonstrate from Jesus himself that he thought he was God? Really? The thought never crossed his mind? <laughs> As you look at the Gospels, on almost every page, you are left asking yourself the question, who does this person think he is, God or something? It's there everywhere in Scripture. And I want to attempt to demonstrate that Jesus was no ordinary man by building some reflections around one verse that comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount at the end of Matthew 5 through 7. And it's this sort of summary statement that captures the power of what Jesus has just spoken. We read in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished these, saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. He taught as one who had authority. When I think of, of human authority, what do we usually base human authority on? A, a number of, of qualities or characteristics. There is coercive human authority. That's the power of position, maybe even the power of the gun, to get somebody to do what you want them to do because they are in a hierarchy higher than you. Coercive authority. 
There's knowledge authority. These are the subject matter expert who have mastered a content, and uh, they have letters after their name, PhD and MD, because they know a subject matter. And uh, they're the ones that we record in footnotes. There's moral authority. These are the people who occupy high moral ground and command respect because they have paid a price for being true to their convictions. Things like Martin Luther King and ones like Mahatma Gandhi or Nelson Mandela. And then there's regal authority, royal authority. Maybe it's the royal authority of the monarchs of Europe or the democratic you know, regal authorities such as the Kennedys or the Bushes who have had a history of, of public service. These are all the things that we tend to build human authority on. And then comes Jesus. Of that list I've just given you, it's probably only moral authority uh, that fits that qualities of human authority. When Jesus had the opportunity to exercise coercive authority in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he do? He told Peter to put that sword away. At any time I can call down legions of angels from heaven to fight on my behalf, but my kingdom is not of this world. What about royal authority in, in Jesus? Well, Jesus really didn't come into this world with a whole lot of fanfare, did he? Born in a, a cattle stall. When Mary and Joseph present him for circumcision on the eighth day, they do it with the sacrifice of two pigeons, which says that they were a very poor family. They couldn't afford a lamb for a sacrifice. What about subject matter authority? We usually think of somebody who is subject matter authority as somebody who has written books. Jesus didn't write any books. Maybe he got a degree. Did, did Jesus go to Jesus University and get a degree in uh, you know, pre-exilic prophets and then hang that shingle on his wall? Well, what wall? He had no office. Jesus said himself, the foxes have holes, the birds of the airs have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So why were the people amazed at his teaching? Not like the teachers of the law. What was the authority that they saw in Jesus? The Greek word that's used for authority here is very telling. It's the word exousia. Ex means out of. Usia means being or substance. Jesus had authority out of his being or substance. In other words, he had the stuff. He had what we call gravitas. He had weightiness about himself. He had that ineffable indefinable something that set him apart from others. There was something about the man that simply emanated from his essence that did not require all the human props to create his authority. And what was that something that Jesus had? Well, I want to consider the text of Scripture that we have before us today under three headings. One is that no one ever said the things that Jesus said no one ever did the things that Jesus did. And no one ever showed us the heart of the Father as Jesus showed us. So the first point, he taught with divine authority. 
No one ever said, no one ever taught the kinds of things that Jesus taught. When we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we notice that. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, is given in the context of Jesus announcing that the kingdom of God is among us and that he brings a new reign, a new authority, a new way to live with himself as Jesus is king. And then he goes right into the Sermon on the Mount, starting with the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are teachings, value system, that are 180 degrees out of phase with the prevailing system of the world. How does the Beatitudes begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit. You've got to be kidding. The world believes blessed are the rich. Blessed are those who strut their stuff. Donald Trump actually believes that everybody is envious of his lifestyle. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. Blessed are those who are guilt-free, our world says. Blessed are the meek, Jesus says. We'd say, blessed are the geeks. (laughs) Come on. You've got to be kidding. A new rule has come. And Jesus has turned the world upside down. No, actually, we are upside down, and he's just telling us about what right side up is really all about. Jesus is looking at life, not from a human perspective, but from a God's eye view. When we say, blessed are, Jesus is not saying, ah, happy are. He's not saying, you are kind of happy-go-lucky. No, he said, To be blessed by God is to come under the pleasure, the delight of God. You are blessed if you are poor in spirit because you come under God's delight. Some people translate that fortunate or congratulations. My favorite translation comes from an erudite theologian. You might not expect this source, Karl Barth. He says, you lucky bums are those who are poor in spirit. Jesus Sets us right side up in an upside down world. The second thing we notice about the Sermon on the Mount is not so much Jesus' teaching, but his authority. He places himself at the center of all things. There's a repeated phrase in the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. You have heard it said, Jesus says, but I say to you. He sometimes quotes an Old Testament passage and gives its deeper meaning, sometimes quotes an indirect Uh, incorrect uh, interpretation of Old Testament passages and then corrects it. But either way, he places himself as equal to the revelation of God in the Old Testament. Now the crowds were used to the teachers of the law and the way they went about authority. And if you wanted to be an authority as a teacher of the law, what would you do? You took the Torah the five books of the Old Testament and the commentary on the Torah, the Mishnah, you studied that and then you argued for your interpretation based upon Rabbi Shemel's or Rabbi Hillel's interpretation, and you argued your point based upon precedence. What did Jesus do? You've heard it said. But I say to you. It'd be kind of like an, a lawyer arguing a case before the Supreme Court. And you got up there to argue your case, and you didn't give no case law, you gave no precedent for the particular argument that you were giving. You just simply stood up there and said, here's my argument based upon me. (laughs) 
And what would a justice say to you at that moment? Lawyers? What's your basis? What's your interpretation of the case law that's come before you? Jesus doesn't do that. I say to you. A modern rabbi by the name of Jacob Neusner is the world's preeminent scholar on Judaism in the time of the early Christian era. And one of his books is entitled, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus. And he acknowledges in this book a great respect for Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount. He says he's very impressed and moved by the Sermon on the Mount. But he has to part company with Jesus in a very major way because he goes in the wrong direction, says Neusner. He can't follow Jesus in his shift from the Torah to a focus on himself as the central authority. And here's the quote that caught my eye from Rabbi Neusner. At issue is the figure of Jesus, not the teaching at all. In the end, the master Jesus makes a demand that only God makes. Yeah, that's the point. (laughs) He is God, and so he can make that demand. No one taught like Jesus taught. No one ever said the kinds of things that Jesus said. Second thing we note in our text this morning is that Jesus demonstrated the divine authority because he did only the things that God could do. We're going to look at uh, three of the texts selected from our studies for this week and note the kinds of things that Jesus did. That he forgives sins, that he raises the dead, he stills a storm. That's all. Let's look at uh, three windows into Jesus' divinity. You know the story of the four friends who bring the paralyzed man on the pallet to that place where Jesus is teaching, you know, that house where it's packed to the gills with people and, and they can't get through the front door because it's so jammed. And so they decide to go up on the roof and tear open the roof and lower the man down on the pallet in front of Jesus. <laughs> Wouldn't you have liked to own that house had they? And Jesus, of course, sees this man, is arrested by his attention. And then instead of giving him what he wants initially, he gives him what he needs. And so he says to this man on the pallet, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And who's listening in at this moment but the teachers of the law? And they're thinking to themselves. Now the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Yes, that's the point. It's as if Jesus takes this personally, that he can forgive sins. C.S. Lewis captures the import here quite well in his own commentary on, on this particular passage of Scripture. He says, now unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. But what should we make of a man who has announced that he forgave you for treading on another man's toes or stealing another man's money? Jesus acts as if all sin is ultimately directed at him because he's God. Let's look at another window into Jesus' divinity. You know the story of of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, who comes up to Jesus one day. He's in a panic because his daughter is on the verge of death. And Jesus, come to my house right away. Uh, You can heal her. 
preserver from death. Well, as Jesus is going to Jairus' house, what happens? He's interrupted by a woman who's had an internal bleeding for a number of years. Jesus takes care of that issue and then finally arrives at Jairus' home. But by the time he gets there, the little girl has died. The wailers are out mourning her death. And as Jesus enters Jairus' home, he says in such a way that the crowds can hear it, she's not dead, she's asleep. And what's the response? They laugh. (laughs) We know what death is like. We know when somebody's died. We can touch the clammy skin. But Jesus enters into the home. Scripture says, he took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. So who's laughing now? Who is this? That even death turns backwards at his command. And then the final window this morning into the divinity of Jesus in terms of his actions uh, has to do with his stilling of the storm. There's a number of, of these incidents recorded in the Gospels, but the one I think that is most dramatic is the time when Jesus is with the disciples on the boat. A squall comes up on the Sea of Galilee. The water starts sloshing over the boat. And what's Jesus doing? He's sleeping. <laughs> And disciples are rather perturbed with Jesus. Don't you know that we're going to go into the drink here, Jesus? You need to do something. So we read in Mark chapter 4, verses 38 and 39. Disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. And what was the response of the disciples? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Really? It never crossed Jesus' mind that he was God? I I dare you to go try that. It certainly crossed the mind of those who were around him. I think this is an appropriate time to quote an off-quoted statement of C.S. Lewis. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And I think this, this says is, with Jesus, there's no neutral territory. You've got to make a choice. So the question is not only, who does Jesus think he is, but who do you 
think he is. That's the choice we make. But our question this morning is not simply a matter of the head. It's a matter of the heart as well. Yes, only Jesus said the kinds of things that he said, and only Jesus did the kinds of things that he did. But only Jesus showed us the heart of the Father as he did and wooed us to himself. And that's our last point of demonstration this morning. One of the texts of Scripture that we were to read for this morning is the parable of the prodigal son. I oftentimes say if I had one small portion of Scripture that I could hold on to because I was going to be incarcerated somewhere, I would have that. The story of God's heart in that parable that Jesus tells, which I like to call the parable of the waiting father. You know the story. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son comes to the father and says, Father, uh, give me my share of what is coming to me. This is where I wish the Bible had a soundtrack. Because when those who heard that request at that time, what would have happened? They would have gasped. You can't say that. The father is the patriarch. He's the head of the family. You don't ask for your inheritance before the father dies. It's like saying you want your father dead right now. You would expect the father to exercise his patriarchal authority role. Shame the son, send him off to somewhere else. No longer a part of the family. But what does the father do? He lets his son go. Gives him his inheritance. Son, of course, squanders that inheritance and loose living. He's now feeding the pigs. And he decides it's time to go back to the father. He sees where it's all come to. But when he goes back to the father, he's still clueless. He doesn't get it. He's injured the heart of the father. The father has suffered keeping his heart open for the son. And even though he comes back with a confession. It's not until the father demonstrates his love that he realizes what happens. And it's appropriate that I'm wearing this garb today because the Middle Eastern father would have been wearing a long garb. And on that day, the scripture says that he cinched up his robe and he took off down that road in a sprint towards his son. And before the son could even get his confession out, he threw his arms around his son in compassion, the scripture says, and welcomed him home. And he turns to the servants and says, servants, go slaughter the fatted calf. For this son of mine was dead, but now is alive. He was lost, but now he's found. Let's celebrate. Folks, that's divine love. There's nothing of human character in that kind of love. We may be impressed by what Jesus said and what he did, but we're drawn to his heart by what he revealed to us. It would appear that though Charles Templeton consciously walked away from Jesus, I wonder if Jesus ever really left him. See, Lee Strobel's conversation went on. And Strobel asked Templeton, 
So how would you assess Jesus? Strobel notices a a change of demeanor at that question. He uh, he begins to kind of become softer, a little bit melancholy, a bit nostalgic about his past, and starts to speak more slowly and reflectively. And Templeton says, well, he was the greatest human being who ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was, was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person I've ever encountered. Strobel is kind of taken by the emotion that he hears in Templeton's voice. And he says, you sound like you really care about him. Well, yes. He's the most important thing in my life. And then Templeton stuttered out these words. I, 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 I know it may sound strange. But I have to say, I adore him. And then came perhaps the saddest, most poignant words I've ever read. And if I may put it this way, Templeton went on. I miss him. Well, we may leave Jesus, but does he ever leave us? Was this Templeton's time of coming back home? Was he the prodigal? Coming back to Jesus in that moment? I don't know. But ultimately, each of us are given a chance to come back home. To allow ourselves to be embraced by the Father. To be welcomed back and to acknowledge the pain and suffering we have inflicted in the Father's heart because of our rebellion against Him. So my question this morning to you is this. Have you come back home? Have you done that yourself? Have you said, there's no one like Jesus? This is the one I must have. It's time to leave the far country and come home. I have a Heavenly Father waiting for me there. This morning, I want us to give us a chance to, to cross the line. Some of you may say, you know, I've never really crossed that line. I acknowledge Jesus as the Lord of my life, the one I'm going to follow throughout my life, to make him no more ordinary man in my life. In the pews, you see this card. It says, please contact me. And I'm going to ask those of you who want to make a commitment this morning to cross that line to say, okay, I've looked and I see where I need to go. I'm going to take that step of faith and put my weight upon Jesus as the one who is Lord. And if you're ready to do that this morning during the time that I pray, take this card out. Make sure that uh, you have your name on that or in a way that we can contact you. And if you pray the prayer of commitment this morning, I want you to write three words on this card. I did it. (laughs) I did it. And then take this card and hand it to me as you come out this morning, would you? Jesus said, if we confess him before men, God will confess us before his Father. So let's pray together. Father, I pray this morning for any here who are being drawn to you today that your arms are open, that you're welcoming in, and that you're saying, come home. Come home to me as your Lord and Savior and follow me all the rest of your days.
And so I pray in the first person these thoughts. Lord, I have wandered away from you. I've been in the far country. I've rebelled against your heart. I have broken it. And yet I see your compassionate love welcoming me back. The one who is my Lord in my life. And I come into your arms. Please accept me with all that I have, am and have been. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.